Thank you for that prayer, Dan. I uh, appreciate it, and I want to say I appreciate Pastor Dan preaching these last two Sundays while I was on vacation. I thought he did an excellent job. And uh, this morning, we are going to return to our study of the Gospel of John, and we are in John chapter 18, and we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses of John 18. Before I do that, I want to just share something with you. I want to talk just a little bit about next Sunday. Next Sunday will be August 14th, and we're going to do some special things next Sunday to honor Karen Leaf. Karen, our longtime director of Beacon, and, uh, Beacon of Hope, and God has really used her to grow that ministry to what it is today. Next Sunday morning in the early part of the service, um, Karen, we're going to give her some time just to share some thoughts with you, some reflections uh, on her time as the director of Beacon of Hope, um, and we're so grateful too that God's already put Cindy Thalen in place to be our new director, and they are working together until the end of this month when Karen will retire. And then next Sunday night, I really want to emphasize next Sunday night, after the service, the fellowship in the gym after the service will be for Karen. It will be your opportunity to give her a card, to say thank you to her, to say how much you've appreciated uh, all the hard work and many hours she's put in at the Beacon of Hope. So I just wanted to mention that, uh, what's going to happen next Sunday. Well, as I mentioned this morning, we are in John chapter 18, and we are now at a, an important transition in the Gospel of John. When we think of the Gospel of John, it is kind of arranged in sections. We have chapters 1 through 4, then we have chapters 5 through 12, then we have chapters 13 through 17. And all of those sections of the Gospel of John are very heavy content, good content. The greatest defense of the deity of Christ that Jesus is fully God in all of Scripture is found in the Gospel of John. But now we transition to chapters 18 through 21, and there's a slight change in the narrative. And now Jesus is going to the cross. We've seen all of this defense of his deity, and now everything leads up to Jesus is now about to die. In these chapters, we will look at his betrayal, at his arrest, at his mocking, at his beating, at his death, at his resurrection, at his post-resurrection appearings. That's all about to come, and the events move very rapidly. So there is a, a, a kind of a significant change in, in the type of literature that we have in the rest of the Gospel of John. And in verses 1 through 11 of John 18, we read, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. 
Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So, if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Well, our first point this morning is Jesus is in complete control. This morning, I want you to see that Jesus is in complete control of every detail of his betrayal and arrest. All of these events happen only because Jesus allows them to happen. Folks, he is not a victim, he is a victor. All of these things he knew about and knew exactly how they were going to transpire. Now let me just bring us back to where we are at. It's now late on Thursday evening. Jesus has met in the upper room with his disciples. We saw the upper room discourse in chapters 13 through 16. Jesus giving his last instructions to his disciples before he goes to the cross. First there were 12, but then Judas left, and then there were 11. It is there that he celebrates the Passover with them. There he institutes the Lord's Supper. And there he announces that one of them would betray him. And after giving his final instructions, he prayed for them. And we have that great high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, which we looked at in four different parts. And then, as I mentioned to you, things began to move. And things began to move quickly. And we see the hand of God and the sovereignty of God in every part of this story. I want you to remember as we go through this John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Jesus says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now, this is a great passage of Scripture to memorize, and I know probably some of you get tired of me saying that. I say that about a lot of passages. But I know when I read through Scripture, there are certain sections. I'm always kind of on the alert for things that I should memorize. And this is one of those passages. Jesus says, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. You need to know that as we work through this passage of Scripture. So we are looking at verses 1 through 11. This entire scene takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane, a frequent meeting place for Jesus 
and his disciples. And in verse 1, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, it's talking about chapters 13 through 17. When Jesus had spoken those words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. This is the garden of Gethsemane. We know that by the description, and we know it from the other three Gospels. And it's so interesting to me, and I kind of went back and reviewed this all again this week, but all the Gospel writers, the four Gospel writers, when it comes to Jesus' betrayal and arrest, they all emphasize something different. The Apostle John throughout his entire gospel is emphasizing that Jesus is fully God and so that is his emphasis and he includes certain details that they don't, the other three writers, and he doesn't include details that they do include. But they are in the Garden of Gethsemane and it's in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus would go and pray. He actually prays before this happens. But John doesn't record that. John gets right to the action, to the events that take place there. It is there that he would meet with his disciples. So in verse 2, it says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So this wasn't that they met there one time. He often met there with his disciples. Now Judas knew. Judas knew where Jesus and his disciples would be. But here's what I want you to understand this morning. Jesus knew that Judas knew that this is where they would go. You see, if Jesus was trying to run away from his arrest, he could have met in a secret place. He could have said, guys, we've got to get out of here. No, he knew. He knew that Judas knew that this is where they were going to go. He knew all of this ahead of time. So in verse 3, it says, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Judas, who has now betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, arranges for, procures a band of soldiers. That phrase, a band of soldiers, is interesting and, and important for us this morning. Because I don't know what, what kind of image you have in your mind when they came to arrest Jesus, but band of soldiers, in the New International Version, it says it is a detachment of soldiers. In the New King James Version, it says it is a detachment of troops. In the New American Standard Bible, it says it is a Roman cohort. A Roman cohort could have up to 600 soldiers. And if you have a New American Standard Bible, that's what it'll say in the footnote there. But a Roman cohort could be anywhere from 200 to 600 soldiers. So let's take the lowest number here. They at least come to Jesus with 200 soldiers carrying weapons and lanterns and torches. And you think, why would they bring 200 plus soldiers to arrest one man? And I think it's because they thought this was gonna be a dogfight. 
I think they thought this was going to be the last stand of the disciples and Jesus, and they were going to fight back with all their might. And maybe others would come to help them. And they don't get it at all. That he's going to voluntarily give himself up. There will be no fight. He's going to voluntarily allow them to arrest him. Now watch verse 4. Very important verse in this section. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? He takes the initiative. Now, don't miss it. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. He's completely omniscient. He knows everything. He knows everything that's going to happen. And it says he came forward. Usually when you go to arrest someone, they're falling back, trying to run. No, he comes forward. He takes the initiative with them and says, Whom do you seek? Then verse 5. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Now notice, they do not call him the Christ. They do not call him Messiah. They do not acknowledge that he claims to be God. They refuse to use any of those terms. They call him by the most common name you possibly could the person's name and where they're from. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, Jesus from the town of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Now, in the Greek construction of that little phrase, I am he, the word he doesn't exist. There is no word he. It is simply two words, I am. I am he is what is called an implied translation. That it's implied what Jesus is saying is I am he. But in the Greek construction, there are simply two words, I am. Folks, Jesus is saying to them, I am who I am. In the Gospel of John, we have seen the seven great I am statements of Jesus. We have seen Jesus use it new, numerous times, especially in chapters 5 through 12, in the defense of his deity. And he says to them, I am. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth? I am. I am the eternal, everlasting, ever-existent, unchangeable God. Now that would have meant nothing to the soldiers, but it would have great significance for his disciples and great significance for any of the Jewish religious leaders who have come along for this. He is claiming to be the eternal God. And I want you to hold on to that, especially when we get to verse 6. But before we get to verse 6, I want you to notice that last sentence. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. He was standing with them. He was standing on the side of evil. Judas, who was with Jesus for approximately three years, who heard him teach, who saw his miracles, who saw his power, who has now betrayed him, is standing with them. 
And I never want you to forget what we learned in John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, Jesus is identifying for his disciples the betrayer. He's saying, one is going to betray me, and here's who he is. John 13, verses 26 and 27. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. And let me tell you, that's exactly what Judas did. He is doing it, and he is doing it quickly. But I want us to never forget that one phrase. Satan entered into him. John's the only gospel that tells us that. John MacArthur says this, it is one thing to say that he was that a demon entered into him, but it says that Satan himself entered into Judas. And at the end of verse 5, the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. He was standing with Satan. He was standing on the opposite side of God and his followers. Then in verse 6, it says, When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And that's why I emphasized that it says, I am, that Jesus says, I am. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, if you go to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, and the Gospel of Luke, none of them give us that detail. Only John does. And I think it's amazing. And I'm so glad he does. Jesus says, I am. They draw back and fall to the ground. And that's why I emphasize there are likely 200 plus soldiers, plus others who are with them, who have come to to arrest Jesus. And I just want you to try to imagine with your sanctified imaginations that all of them draw back and fall to the ground. Why did that happen? And I read some kind of ridiculous efforts at trying to explain why they fell to the ground. But I think there is only one biblical explanation for why those soldiers drew back and fell to the ground, and that was the power of the voice of Jesus. It's the power of the voice of Jesus. He speaks, I am, and those hundreds of soldiers draw back and fall to the ground. Do you see what's going on here? They've come to arrest him and they all fall down when he speaks. Who's in control here? Jesus is. He is fully in control of this situation. This is the power of God. He speaks the word and they fall down. Then they get themselves back up, verse 7. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He wants to clarify with them. He wants to hear it from them. Whom do you seek? And that leads us to our second point. Jesus protects his own. Jesus protects his own. 
In the midst of the chaos of his betrayal and arrest, Jesus deliberately and intentionally protects his disciples. In verses 8 and 9, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Jesus wants to clarify whom they are after. Jesus of Nazareth, that's whom you come for. Then if you seek me, then let these men go. And then there is a quote from the Old Testament that says, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Now this is interesting and actually, if you're studying through the Gospel of John, it's a little bit difficult to interpret because this phrase, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one, Jesus used early in the Gospel to refer to the salvation of the 11. Of those you gave me, I lost not one. And generally, it refers to all who genuinely believe in him. But now it's not a reference to their salvation, but to their physical protection. Why does he use the same words to refer both to their salvation and to their physical protection? And, and though it's difficult, and, and I read a lot on this, I think this is why. At this point in their lives, these 11 men are not ready to be arrested and persecuted. They are not ready to endure hardship and persecution. They will be after the resurrection, but they're not now. And I think that Jesus knew if, if these 11 had been arrested and severely persecuted, beaten, it would have shattered their faith could have destroyed their faith. I mean, we're going to see that, that Peter denies Jesus three times coming up. And so I think here we see the scriptures fulfilled that God will not allow us to endure more than he allows. He knows where you're at. He knows how much you can endure at this particular point in your journey in the faith. And he knew they were not ready to endure this. Not yet. Not yet. So in verse 10, it says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now the other gospel writers also record this. So Peter, ever impetuous, ever impulsive, he's ready to go to war. I mean, again, got to think of the situation. There are like 200-plus soldiers there. And Peter draws his sword, and he's ready to fight. Now, there's a good part of this. Although Peter often acted without thinking, he's ready to, to defend his Savior. I mean, there is a sense of courage here, but there is also a real sense of foolishness in a sense of Peter just doesn't get it. Peter doesn't see what's really happening here. So he just swings his sword, cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. His name is Malchus. And you, again, you gotta try to enter into this scene, the drama of this scene. This guy's probably falls to the ground, screaming, blood gushing all over the place. But Luke tells us, in the Gospel of Luke, it says that Jesus reached down, touched his ear, and healed him completely. So he diffuses the situation. 
And then he says to Peter, verse 11, So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter, Peter, I'm in control here. I know exactly what I'm doing. You know, we're a lot like Peter, more than I think we realize. When we go through hard time, we're ready to help God out. Oh yeah, we want to pray. We want to trust him, but boy, we better do our part or God can't make it through, help us through this. And I think that's where Peter's at. Boy, I better take out my sword and defend him. And Jesus says, Peter, Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He's speaking of the cup of God's wrath, the cup of God's judgment. I have come to endure the wrath and judgment of God in your place, in your place. And in a sense, in this whole scene, there is a symbol of the cross itself. Jesus will be arrested. Jesus will be punished. The others are let go. Jesus is punished so that others might be let go. But as we come to the end of this passage, Jesus will be bound like a criminal and march to a certain execution, but he is in complete control of everything. And that's what I want to emphasize to you this morning again. No matter how it looks from human eyes, Jesus is in complete control. He is the great I am. No one can cause him to do what he has not already planned to do, not the soldiers, not the Jewish religious leaders, not Judas Iscariot. Everything, everything is under God's sovereign control, even when it looks like chaos there in the garden. Jesus embraces his destiny. This is why he was born into this world. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You see, as I said before, Jesus is the victor even when it seems like he is losing. It seems like this is one of the darkest moments in the entire life of Jesus, but it's really not. He's heading for his greatest victory. You see, the one who could walk on water and raise the dead could easily have defeated all of the soldiers who had come to arrest him. All he had to do was say the word, and legions of angels would have come to his aid that's what Matthew tells us. Matthew says, could I not, in Matthew's um, account, Jesus says, could I not have appealed to the Father and he would have sent me 12 legions of angels? And yet, as we end this scene, here he is, bound like a common criminal, walking in the darkness, surrounded by the soldiers, on his way to the cross. And as we share the Lord's Supper together, as we go to communion now, I want you to think he voluntarily went to the cross. He voluntarily was arrested, voluntarily died, so that you could live. He voluntarily was arrested, he voluntarily died, so that you could be forgiven. He voluntarily was arrested, he voluntarily died so that you could become his own.
If you're visiting with us this morning, let me give you just a brief description of how we do communion. Uh, one deacon will pray this morning for the bread and cup. The deacons will hand out the bread and cup together, a little stack of two cups. When everyone has been served, I will then read a passage of scripture and we will eat and drink together. If you're with us watching by live stream this morning while the deacons are serving communion, we encourage you to use this as a time of meditation and reflection. At this time, we will share the Lord's Supper together. 